Here we go, part three. Are you guys enjoying reading the book of Philippians so far? Good, hopefully you are. Three of us are. That's exciting. It's better than none. Um, If you're new to the Bible, uh, welcome to a study, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians. I want to give you a little bit of backdrop, kind of recap where we've been the last two weeks. This is week three. We're reading this book. It was uh, written originally in right around 60, 61 AD by a man that's known in history as the Apostle Paul. Before he was known as Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a hater of Christians, a zealous Jewish religious leader who persecuted Christians, but then had an experience, met Jesus. He became a missionary for Jesus, and he began to preach about Jesus to everyone who would listen, felt like God sent him to the non-Jewish parts of the world, and so he began to tour Europe and and all over the uh, Middle East preaching about Jesus, ended up in a Roman colony called Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, in the area of Macedonia, and so he begins to preach to these people. Uh, He gets thrown in prison, prison chaos breaks out, but a church is also born. 20 years later, he's now writing to his very, very close friends in Philippi. He's in a Roman prison, and he's writing to his friends in Philippi about what it means to follow Jesus. And more than any other letter, I believe that Paul wrote, this one, other than maybe Timothy, this one is an intimate look into the way the Apostle Paul thinks, into the way that he operates as a person, into his way of thinking. And so uh, the big idea of the letter again and again is that Paul wants to set a model for Christian living, okay? What it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. And so he uses various illustrations and presses uh, the Philippian people to um, follow Jesus. And so last week we looked at this idea that if I have Jesus, I have... Oh, yeah, right, good job. Give yourself a high five. That was good, just... High five yourself. Awesome. Yeah. Way to go. So if I have Jesus, I have everything. You remember Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So if I have Jesus, I have everything. This was his mindset. We're going to get another glimpse into the way Paul thinks today as he encourages the Philippians. So we got a big fat passage of scripture. We're doing this whole book in eight weeks, verse by verse. So uh, we'll do our best to cover a big chunk today. Verse 27 of chapter one, Philippians. If If you have a Bible, you can go there. If not, it will be on screen. I'm going to read all the way down to Philippians chapter two, verse 11. Okay. And you can study this passage on your own, or here's a little plug. Go to a community group, and they'll be studying this passage this week. All right? So community groups meet every night of the week, and uh, you can jump in on one of those, and they'll be studying this passage of Scripture there as well. Here we go. Verse 27, where we left off last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now here that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is going to be good today. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in 
Christ Jesus, who though he was not, excuse me, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can you put your hands together for the word of God today? Oh, wow, that's an awesome passage. We love you, God. Let's pray and open up our hearts to Jesus. Jesus, we open up our hearts to you this morning. We want to hear from you. None of us came to this building at Co-op High School today to hear from a man or from an individual human being. We came to hear the voice of God. Lord, I pray a special blessing on all the moms today, that you give them a grace, that you bless them, that you refresh them, that you encourage them this morning here at church. And I also pray for all of us that you'd speak to us specifically and directly about our lives and about how we apply your truth. We open up our hearts to you, God, today, and we want to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Years ago, um, many of you guys know that my background is in music, did a lot of stuff with music through the years, played a lot of music, been a part of a lot of different bands. And uh, years ago, uh, a band that I was playing with, a Christian band, I had met Jesus, life was transformed, and I was traveling with this Christian band. And my friend from New Hampshire was running another ministry, his name is Sean, and Sean called me one day and asked if the Christian band I was a part of wanted to go on a ministry tour with them in Europe. How many ever been to Europe before? Let me see. Some of us might be from Europe. Good. Awesome. Lots of us. And so this was my first experience in Europe. And so uh, here I am, 19, 20 years old, traveling from place to place. There was about 20 of us. And the trip was insane. I mean, it was intense. We did an event every single night. And oftentimes it was an event that was in a different country than the one we did the night before. And so we would jump on a train at, say, 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning, sometimes 5 a.m. We would go from train to train, from train to train, from train to train, get where we were about maybe 4 or 5 p.m., hustle off the trains, having barely eaten, slam some food on the way, get to an event, get a bunch of equipment that was a different electrical connection than we were used to in the United States and didn't have English written on it, had different languages written on it. We'd fiddle around with that, finally get a sound system set up, do a concert, worship Jesus, preach the gospel. People would come to Christ. We'd pack it all up, break it down, pray for people for a few hours, get to somebody's host home, sleep on the floor for three hours, get up again, get back to the train station, back on a train. Doesn't it sound like fun? awesome. It was great. And so by about day four, we all looked like crack addicts, just droopy faced, and like we had just been, you know, doing some hard drugs. And so that's what we looked like, just exhausted, beat up. And I remember um, one of these days transferring from train to train. And when we were in the Netherlands, we met a guy uh, by the name of Fika Van Dyke. He became one of our good friends. That's a Dutch name if I ever heard one, Fika Van Dyke. And so uh, Fika um, joined our band kind of on the fly, was a great percussionist and just decided to join our band. And so here we were with Fika uh, and traveling all over the place, just having a good time. As we jumped from train to train one day, we were pushing hard. We were running hard, carrying luggage from 20 days worth of, of travel, you know, backpacks on, you know, uh, uh, guitars in our hands, uh, keyboard on our shoulder, running from train to train. And this one time we're running into the train and it's like about to close, the door's about to go and we're hustling and we're running, we're pushing 20 of us. We finally get the last guy on and just as we get the last guy on, the door's closed and we look around and we're covered, surrounded in luggage, 20 of us standing there and we're all like, yeah, we made it. And we look around and there's all these very polite European people sitting on the train like, and Fika just looks at us and goes, Americans. 
<laughs> and I thought to myself for the first time, hey, I'm American. Like there's something different about me. You know, when you grow up in a world, you don't really realize that your culture has certain ways of doing it. What is it? What is it? Don't answer this. What does it mean, especially you non, non from America? Don't answer this. What does it mean to be American? Some of you are like, no. Maybe it means to be brash or maybe it means to be independent. There's probably, you know, you think about it. American is such a broad term, isn't it? There's so many different kind of pieces to that puzzle. Well, what about Italian? What's it mean to be Italian? What does it mean to be African? What does it mean to be Asian? What does it mean to be Australian? What does it mean to be from the Middle East? What does it mean to be from South America? What's it mean to be English? See, it seems that every culture develops a certain manner of life, right? They have certain things they do, certain things they don't do. They have a certain speed of life, certain things they value. Culture seems to develop in certain areas and then people carry that. And that's a good thing. I think we celebrate that. It's part of the great tapestry of God. But there's a deeper question that this passage presses, and I want to start with it today. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be Christian? If you notice in verse 27, the passage we started with, Paul says, only let the manner of life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. Okay. Interestingly enough, Paul is doing a little Greek nuance there. Okay. He says, let the manner of life. Now, you might not care much about Greek, but if you have an ESV translation Bible, you'll notice that there's a little note next to it. You can go down to the bottom, and that phrase actually means behave as citizens. Okay. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's important. There's a transition in his conversation with the Philippians, and it hinges on this idea that you must behave as citizens. See, the people of Philippi were citizens of, anybody know? Rome. They were Roman citizens, okay? It was a pretty big deal in that day to be a Roman citizen. As a Roman citizen, you had certain rights, you had certain privileges. This was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. And because they were Roman citizens, they carried that with a certain amount of confidence, of prestige. They carried that as an identity. And so Paul is saying, I understand that even though, check this out, you don't live in Rome, right? They were a colony of Rome. You still live as citizens by Rome, Right. In the same manner now, something bigger than your natural citizenship has been introduced into your life. And so I don't want you to just live as an American or as an Englishman or as an African or any of those things. I don't want you to just live like that. Something bigger has gotten introduced. And now you have a manner of life. You must behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. See, you are now born again in heaven. And even though you don't live in heaven, you should be living by heaven. Oh, isn't that good? I thought that was good. It's it's from the Bible. It's really, it's really encouraging. So in other words, what he's saying here is he's saying there's a certain ethos, a certain life system, a certain way of doing things that defines what is a Christian. And it may surprise you that it has nothing to do with VeggieTales or Michael W. Smith or bumper stickers on the back of your car. That there's something about Christianity. If you don't know any of those things, God bless you. God bless you. Blessed are the pure in heart. So he describes what it means to be a Christian. He describes what it means to live a life worthy of the manner, a manner worthy of the gospel. He uses phrases like standing firm with one mind. Christians supposedly, in Paul's view, are united people, consistent people, side by side, not frightened, not frightened. He says that's that's what that's what that's what followers of Jesus. That's a life worthy, a manner of life worthy. He says willing to suffer. 
Willing to suffer. That one always ranks high on Americans' lists. What? Willing to suffer? No, no, no. We want willing to enjoy pleasure. No, he says Christians are willing to suffer. Engaged in divine conflict. He says, listen, you might lose some stuff. You might have to sacrifice some stuff. But in the midst of those sacrifices, in the midst of losing things, you and I have a natural tendency to focus on who? Ourselves, right? What about me? Especially when things get tough, right? When things get tough, have you ever had this experience? Maybe somebody in the room has. Things get tough and all of a sudden you look around and your friends just disappeared. Like, hey, where were they? Where did you go? What, what, what happened? I thought, I thought things were good. I thought you were my friend. And then when things got tough, you kind of disappeared. You kind of distanced yourself. It got weird. What happened? Maybe you've had that experience. Jesus had that experience, by the way. But Paul says, listen, when things get tough, I want you to do this. Check out verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, look at this phrase, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing, the NIV translation says, nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing from selfish ambition. This can be confusing for some of us because we think, wait a minute, I'm just better at some things than other people. Raise your hand if you're better at some things than other people. Four of us, you should be. You should be better at something than other people, right? So yeah, so we're all better at some things than other people are. That's okay. See, we struggle with this because we think to ourselves, well, then I, maybe I'm supposed to just say that they're better than me. No, that's called lying. You're better at some things than other people. This has nothing to do with your skill set. Maybe you're very good at math. Maybe you're very good at science. Maybe you're very good at English. Whatever you're good at in all the things of life, maybe you're good at fixing cars. Maybe you're good at fixing lawns. I don't know what you're good at, but whatever you're good at, God's given you certain graces. You may be way better than the guy next to you. This has nothing to do with skill. This instead is a mindset. And it's a mindset that says, I am going to choose to make the priorities of others more significant in my prioritization than my own needs. That's a radical idea, is it not? It's an idea that everybody says, oh yeah, that sounds good, sure. Uh, How do we do that? Try harder, that's how. Try harder. No, that's not how you do it, by the way. That's not how you do it. You could try harder and you're not going to do very good. Well, discipline yourself more. Now you'll slip back into thinking about yourself. How do you live a life that really is others focused? Well, Paul's got a secret for us. Because the Apostle Paul had cultivated this lifestyle. and He's about to show us how he did it. See, when I was a little kid... Um, uh, actually, Sleeping Giant. It's a park in uh, Hamden, Connecticut. Anybody ever been there? Let me see your hand. Sleeping Giant. All right. Yeah. I shared this in first service. There was like four people. I was like, what are you guys? Go to Sleeping Giant. It's fun. Anyways, it's this beautiful park. It's really nice in the spring and the fall. And, uh, and we would climb up this mountain. On the top of the mountain, there's a castle, right? If you've been there, you know the deal. And so it's a great place to hike. It's a lot of fun. It's all types of things. But uh, we oftentimes would take the path up to the, up to the castle. And about three quarters of the way up, there's this lookout spot. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's this spot with just kind of an opening amongst the trees. And you're walking and you see trees, 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 nothing, nothing, trees, trees, nothing. And then you get to the spot and you can see for like a really far distance. You can just see for 
miles. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And I remember many times as a kid seeing that spot up ahead and running to get to that spot. And my older brother was often faster than me. And he would run and he would get to the spot and he would look out there. And I could just see his face as he could see just for the expanse all down across Hamden and into other towns. Just this glorious, beautiful, high spot. And I remember being back here and looking at him and being like, man, he he sees something I don't see. But I'm going to see it soon and I just want to see what he sees because I know what he's seeing is amazing. And all I see is the trees of right now. But up here, he sees farther and bigger and broader. And there's something amazing up there. And I just want to get to where he is. What Paul is saying today is he said, hey, look, I'm at a lookout spot and I can see real good from here. And you might be kind of buried in the trees of self. But if you would just come with me and see the way I see, you could find the solution to how to actually live like you love other people. Oh, tell somebody this is going to be good. Tell somebody that you need to hear this. Tell them you need to hear this because you're kind of selfish. Go ahead and tell somebody that. Um, Don't tell your wife that, especially if she's a mom. Definitely don't tell her that today. All right, so let's see what Paul has to say about this. He says this, have this mind, verse 5, have this mind in you. This is kind of an awkward statement. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The King James translation says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus thought like this. You think like this. Here's the mind of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm going to read this whole thing and then we'll go through it slowly. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul is painting here a divine extreme. In fact, I would contend that it is the greatest extreme of all extremes. Did you ever notice that you're attracted to extremes? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Cable TV is making millions off of your distraction, your attraction to extremes, right? And so people take a house. It's a dumpy old house. They make it a nice house. They give it to the people who used to own the dumpy house. The people come in, they start crying, and we all watch it, and they make millions, right? People used to weigh a lot of, you know, a, a very heavy weight, and then they exercised and ate Subway and did all these other things, and now all of a sudden they weigh much less, and we watch the process, and it's amazing. There's something about it that's like, wow, you used to weigh 75 billion pounds, and now you only weigh 100. It's amazing, right? Or you used to live in this dumpy house, and now you live in this beautiful house, and that, that trend, that exchange, that amazing, that amazing expanse just captivates our attention. I like to see that amazing extreme switch. The Jews used to call it, they had this phrase, from the cedars to the hyssop. The cedars were the tallest, most glorious, beautiful trees. The hyssop was the little plant that would grow on the rocks, this little humble plant. And it was this extreme difference from the hyssop to the cedars. It was amazing, this big expanse. And Paul says, hey, come with me to the lookout spot. I want to show you something cool. I want you to see God. It says in the phrase, in the form of God, Jesus, in the form of God. That phrase literally means, in the form of God, means equal in every way to God. He is equal in every way to God. He's possessing the full attributes of God. He's pre-existent. He's all-powerful. He is God in full. 
And though he is God in full, he does not count that position, the phrase says, as something to be grasped or as something to be exploited or as something to be clung to. Instead, he makes himself. Did you notice that? It says that Jesus made himself. Nobody made him. He made himself what? The scripture says nothing. King James Version says of no reputation. So he goes from the highest throne down to humanity. From the highest throne, the one who made, check this out, I made eyebrows. I came up with that idea. That way stuff doesn't fall into your eyes. I thought it was brilliant. Eyebrows, I made those. I made trees. I made photosynthesis. I made fish. I made everything. I made, well, the devil made cats, but everything else I made, right? And so I made all these glorious things. And so I made these Don't quote my theology on that. I made these amazing things and now I'm going to actually become a man. There's no greater descent except that he went further. He didn't just become a man. The scripture says he became a servant and he didn't just become a servant. He became the scum of the earth. See, in this day, crosses didn't hang on golden steeples. Crosses were a disgusting, grotesque description of the lowest of the low of humanity crosses were the execution style that had been invented by the persians but perfected by the romans to cause the most extreme amount of pain possible for the human body and so they would put nails exactly in the place that wouldn't allow you to bleed out but would hold you up and they would put nails in your feet at just the right spot so that you would have to stay there and then your arms and your shoulders would dislocate from their sockets and you'd have to push up on your legs but your legs would become so exhausted that now you'd have to push up with your chest and slowly little by little by little your chest would fill with fluid and eventually you would suffocate if your heart didn't burst from the exhaustion before It was the most excruciating form of death ever invented by humanity. And what he's saying is, hey, God became a man and a servant who died on a cross. You can't get any lower, any farther. And he's saying, hey, would you come with me and would you stare at this spot with me and see the extreme in which God has traveled? I want you to see it because if you see it, guess what will happen? Check this out. A new philosophy on life will develop. A new philosophy on life. Paul's saying, hey, I want to give you a secret into the way that I think. I want to give you a secret into the way that I see things because the cross, see, it's changed everything. The cross was death, but it brought forth more life than anything ever could have. So God turned it all upside down. He made weakness into strength. He made foolishness into wisdom. He made servants into kings. This whole thing got flipped on its head. And from now on, the cross is my philosophy of life. I said, the cross is my philosophy of life. It's the way I think about life. It's my value system. It's my framework. It's the lens in which I understand things. The cross has become my value system, my philosophy of life. And see, the cross gives us an answer. When the cross is your philosophy of life, it gives you an answer into life's biggest questions. For example, I'll give you two because I believe that those are the two that Paul was going after in this passage. The first thing that I believe Paul wanted us to answer as he illustrates this picture of Jesus going from the throne to the cross 
is he says the question that has haunted humanity since the dawn of time is answered right here. Who is God? Who is God? Did you ever notice that it seems that there are a lot of different portraits of God? It's a little bit tricky to discern who he really is, isn't it? You hear all these different stories about who is God. Well, God is like this, or God is like that, and God is like this, and God is like that. I've always really enjoyed art, and uh, one of my favorite artists is Vincent Van Gogh. Do we have any Van Gogh fans in the house? One, great, awesome. He's a pretty good artist. Uh, Unfortunately, Van Gogh didn't uh, really experience any of his... um, you know, success while he was alive. He died a poor, unnoticed artist. And it wasn't until later that about 10 years after his death, his paintings became just the rave. Everybody wanted one. And so he had passed away and his paintings became so popular that people started imitating, check this out, they started imitating his style and calling them Van Gogh's. And so they started mixing in with all of his original work, other works that looked like his, but weren't actually his. And so this got confusing. And so one individual who had studied Van Gogh decided to make the definitive, you know, uh, collection of all the actual Van Gogh paintings. The problem was that a couple of years after that, they made that definitive collection. They found out that a few that were in the definitive collection were actually not definitive. They were fakes as well. And so now since then, it's been a hundred plus years, chaos, nobody knows which one's Van Van Gogh painted and which one other people painted. So you might go see a Van Gogh and it actually might be a Van Dam. It might be somebody else. Okay, it might have been somebody else that did that one. You don't know. In the same way, many of us have heard so many versions of God that we don't know which one's actually God. Here's a piece of advice for you. Trust the one that he painted himself. See, the cross is God's self-portrait. And you have to see the cross as God's self-portrait. You have to see the cross as God's self-portrait. One of the great preachers and theologians, A.W. Tozer, said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about when you think about God? I can tell you that it's probably not quite accurate. Unless you see the cross as God's self-portrait. See, because when you see the cross, you don't have to ever ask the question again, does God love me? You don't have to ever ask the question again, does God care? You don't ever have to ask the question again, is God close? The cross answers those questions forever. I would go so far as to say that if you could see the cross, God never has to do anything for you ever again. To show you that he loves you. That's the power of the cross. When you see the cross, you see a God who's humble. Did you ever think about that? God, the creator of everything, his character is humble. That rubs us the wrong way. God can't be humble. Friend, his strategy to save the world was to be born to a teenage girl in a barn. That was the plan. To live in total obscurity. I mean, no human being would have come up with that plan. To live in obscurity as a peasant, and then after three years of semi-effective ministry, die at the hands of a brutal Roman government. That's the plan. That's the plan? Yep. That's the plan. You see in God, in the cross, that God is actually just. 
He is so just that every single sin must be accounted for. Every sin you ever commit will require judgment, wrath, and justice. And the incredible news of the cross is that justice and mercy kiss at the cross because every piece of God's judgment is satisfied in the unfathomable love displayed on the sacrifice of Christ for the cross, in the cross. This is amazing. We see that God has a volcanic love for people to such a degree. You look up at a dying man on a cross and God says, that's exactly what I'm like. That this humble God is so powerful that he can take foolishness and make it wisdom. That he can take something grotesque and make it beautiful. That now today more people wear crosses for beauty and jewelry than any other image. Because God has the power. He says, you know how powerful I am? I will show you how much I serve to display my power. I think a lot of our problems go back to the fact that you don't see God through the cross. If you're ever wondering who he is, how he feels about you, I want to urge you, don't look any farther than the cross. You want to go by your emotions, it'll be a roller coaster. You want to go by your own reason, it won't get you far enough. If you ever want to see God, look at the cross. Look at the cross. We also get a big answer to a big question, which is, uh, what's the value in this life? How do, how do I live? What, what should I focus on? There's so many different things to focus on in this life. What should, I, what should my value system look like? What should I consider important? And this is what Paul is getting at when he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your value system should be adopted from the value system illustrated in Jesus. You have to see the cross as God's model for living. Jesus set the example of what it means to love and follow God. So what is love? For the last 2,000 years, people have been asking the question. Jesus already answered it. Is love an emotion that I feel for a person? Is love a bubbling up desire that I have for someone? Is love, you know, what, what is love? Just look at the cross. Love is selfless self-sacrifice. That's what love is. Well, what if I don't feel that? Well, sometimes you're not going to. That's love. What is greatness? Greatness is serving. See, at the cross, we see that if you would just humble yourself, check this out. What's the example of Jesus? He humbled himself, and what did God do in him? He exalted him. He exalted him to the highest place. He humbled himself to the lowest place, and God exalted him to the highest place. What's your version of greatness? Is it enough money, enough power, enough prestige, enough importance? Because all those things burn. There's only one definition of greatness that lasts forever. And it's humility and lowliness. That's greatness. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? 
I need a volunteer. Come, my brother. Come on, give him a hand. You can just say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. I have a seat for you, a special seat of honor. You know, what's it mean to be an American? What's it mean to be an African? What's it mean to be Asian? What's it mean to be Australian? What's it mean to be fill in the blank? All of our cultures, you can sit down, thanks. All of our cultures have different ways of doing things. What Paul's saying here is that those things aren't bad necessarily. They, you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily good or bad. But those cultural things are not really who you are if you're in Christ. He says, listen, let me show you a higher manner of life. Let me show you a better way to live. Come over with me to this lookout spot and look at this. Because if you just see it, I remember one Christian said that, Christians are stunned into lowliness. If you'll just see it, you'll be it. I just came up with that, by the way. On the fly. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... And the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's brother, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, he knew his high position, and that he was going back to God. He trusted that God would exalt him. With that in mind, I know who I am, I know who loves me, and I know where I'm going. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taken a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the funky, nasty, poop-covered, dirt-filled, fungus-growing, long toenail feet of his disciples. That's, my, that's what my translation says. And wiped them with a towel that he had wrapped around them. You know, feet are kind of gross, aren't they? I mean, can I hear an amen for that? You didn't know what you were getting yourself into, did you? Feet are kind of nasty. I mean, I know there's someone in the room with toenail fungus. Might be before me right now. Yeah, we're good. Looking pretty clean here. Now, in those days, feet were even worse than they are today, believe it or not. Because people wore sandals and uh, they didn't have all the sanitation that we have today. And so feet often had poop and uh, other delightful things stuck upon them. And in this scenario, God the Son takes the feet, the funky feet, of his disciples and he takes water and he pours clean water over his disciples feet 
And then he takes his hands, the hands who created the world, and he washes in between their toes and up at that spot where some goo gathers around your ankle and all across the bottom that's sweaty and nasty, he takes his hands and he washes their feet. And I know that while he's washing them, he's praying a blessing from God. He's speaking over them that you are my disciple. I bless you in Jesus' name, a disciple of Christ from now and forevermore. And he's washing their feet. And then he takes a towel that's wrapped around himself. He takes their feet out and he dries them. Methodically, 12 guys around that table. Takes a long time. They didn't have cool background music. (laughs) Just funky feet and some dudes. You can put your feet on that. Don't, Don't go anywhere yet. And then he says this. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? And I think everybody there was kind of like, no. (laughs) You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, he's saying, hey, I did this because I wanted to show you that this is what greatness looks like, that this is what love looks like, that this is what Christian looks like. Doesn't have to do with the culture you came from doesn't have to do with the color of your skin, doesn't have to do with the style of your hair. Something's happened inside you that makes you a Christian. And here's the mistake so many people make. They hear a message like this and they go, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do better, be nicer to people. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because you don't have the capacity to be nicer to people in yourself. I mean, sure, you can try. And you might do some behavior modification. But you need more than behavior modification, and so do I. You need soul modification. And that's the secret that Paul wants to describe for us, is he says, listen, it's not about trying harder or doing more. It's about coming over here with me and look at what I'm looking at. Look at this spot. I can see beyond the trees of self. I can see Jesus. He's God. I would have clung to that. But he came. And I want you to be so stunned by Jesus that you find now a divine capacity to not need to grasp for approval, to not need to feel important every time you're in a conversation, to not make it all about you because you need to feed your own ego. Instead, you've seen Jesus. And when you see Jesus like that, something in you is so satisfied and so amazed and so stunned that you can say, you know what? I can, 
I can give myself away and still be full. Would you stand with me? Thanks, Tyler. You can go. Give him a hand as he goes. We appreciate Got some good-looking feet. Yeah. Oh, Lord. You know, I think it's appropriate that we cover this topic on Mother's Day. Moms, if you're here and you feel underappreciated, you feel like you're running out of gas, here's the important thing. You need to remember that nothing that you do to serve others is ever forgotten. That nothing that you do to give of yourself is ever lost. That if you would humble yourself, God will exalt you. And the best place you could ever be is a humble place where God has full opportunity to lift you up. And if you say, well, I don't know if he'll lift me up, just look at Jesus. Look at how he went from the cedar to the hyssop so that he could again go even higher to the name that is above every name, fully God and now fully man, a mediator for you and I. What satisfies your soul? Last week, we looked at this idea, if I have Jesus, I have everything. Today, we examine the philosophy of the cross as a life system, as a way of processing what's valuable. We're going to sing just for a minute, and this is just your time to process with God, just your time to throw yourself on Him once again and experience His grace. Some of us, we've been just striving. You're here, and you've just been striving. You, you just need other people to tell you how important you are. That's not what life is about. You'll never be satisfied. Life is about knowing that the cross has already told you how important you are to God. God, we come to you today with all of our baloney, all of our failure, all of our shortcomings, and all of our selfishness. God, um, it seems impossible to actually consider others more significant than ourselves. It actually, it seems impossible to rejoice in suffering, to stand firm in hardships. It seems impossible, especially in the moment. These things sound like nice truisms with no substance. And we know that trying harder is not going to be the answer. We can't do it just by trying harder. But Lord, I sense today an invitation just to see Jesus as a model, as a self-portrait of God. Show us who you are in him. And show us who we are in him. You do satisfy our souls. And we speak that to you today. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.